Trinity Baptist Church. That was so great. Thank you. Um, we're here to light the pink candle today, and you probably all noticed they're all purple except for the pink one. And that's not a new thing. That's a thousand years old. And Advent used to be like Lent. You would give things up. You couldn't have meat. You couldn't have wine. You couldn't have intimate relations. One of these things is not like the other. Um, and so you were deprived for the period of Lent or Advent, except for today. And the purpose of the pink candle, in Latin it was called Gaudate Sunday, is be joyful. It's a command. Be joyful. Put down the deprivation. Have a big meal. Have a glass of wine. Do other things. Be joyful today. So anyway, we're here to do the Lenten reading on Gaudate Sunday. Advent is a season of joyous preparation for the Lord's Nativity and a celebration of the coming of God as a saving event. For the early Christians, Advent meant the actual physical coming of Jesus the Christ among men. However, Advent is not only a past historical event, but also a current event in which Jesus comes into our hearts as we welcome and receive him as God's promised Savior. In Luke 2, 8 through 11, Luke writes, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. As we light the third Advent candle, let us remember to put our hope in the Lord. The third Sunday in Advent is the Sunday of joy. We light the shepherd's candle, which represents the act of sharing Christ. Jesus Christ is God's gift to all people. The third candle reminds us of the great light which surrounded the shepherds at the announcement of Jesus' birth. series called Turning Point, where we are looking at Jesus as the turning point of history. And um, we looked a couple of weeks ago at the fact that we looked at the world that he came into, that intertestamental period. And then last week, we, we looked at, at Jesus for who he really was, and, and which sometimes doesn't square with who we think him to be. This morning, we are, um, we're going to look at kind of a, a different aspect of, of Jesus. So before we do that, I'd like for you to all stand. And I, um, I want you to greet each other. We haven't greeted each other yet this morning. And to do that, I want you to f- turn and find somebody that you don't know. Tell them your name, 
tell them how long you've been at Trinity, whether it's 20 years or 20 minutes. And, and then I want you to describe in very short terms the, your favorite Christmas card of all time that you've ever received, okay? Describe a Christmas card that you, that you saw it and you went, oh, this is awesome. All right, so turn and greet one another. By a show of hands, for how many of you was your favorite Christmas card one that had a picture of a family? That seems to be like the overwhelming Christmas card these days. Okay, for how many of you did your favorite Christmas card have a you know, a snowy New England town scene with a horse-drawn sleigh. Anybody? No? Come on. How about, um, how about some Christmas card with, with an angel on it? Any angels? You know, I've, the Christmas cards with angels that I've seen, the angels are either cute and cuddly angels, or they're angelic. I don't know how else to describe it. But they never look like a, a character or a figure that you would look at and, and think, that figure needs to say, fear not. Right? I've never seen an angel that looks like, fear not. Um, I don't know what, what your favorite Christmas cards look like. But most of the Christmas cards that we, that we get, whether they're pictures of families, which are great to get, or of some scene or something, the, the sentiments that are attached to those cards, whether inside or on the, on the outside, are, you know, of warmth and, and happiness and joy and peace and, you know, glad tidings. They're, I guess that's fine to... to you know, honor this season with those kind of cheery sentiments. But when I read the gospel accounts of that first Christmas, I get a very different tone and a very different picture than what I see on our Christmas cards. In fact, the gospel accounts really stand in stark contrast to the Christmas card sentiment. Christmas cards would have us to believe that, that, you know, Christmas came and life is good and life is celebratory and life is this. But the truth is that that first Christmas, in fact, turned life on planet Earth upside down. You see, laying the Christmas card sentiment aside when we examine the, the presented facts as recorded in the scriptures, what we celebrate at Christmas makes no logical sense. Right? I mean, the eternal Son of God visits planet earth in order to save us and his mode of entrance is to have an angel appear to an unmarried teenage girl who then gets pregnant without ever having had sex and then travels on horseback to Bethlehem where she spends the night in a barn and has a baby who turns out to be the savior of the world. Really? 
I mean, that's the story. And, I mean, it's the stuff of fairy tales. You got, you know, wise men and shepherds and moving stars. When you think about the presented facts, it makes no sense. And have you ever... Have you ever stopped to consider that when you read the gospel narratives, what they force you to conclude is that the fate of the planet rests on the decision of two rural teenagers? I mean, how many times do you think Mary second-guessed the words of the angel to her as the Son of God kicked in her womb? How many times did, did Joseph second-guess the words of the angel to him when he is going through the shame uh, and embarrassment of walking through his you know, village while all of his neighbors s- see the ever-changing shape of his fiancé? And what about the grandparents? We don't know anything about the grandparents. How did they respond to this news? Were they morally outraged? Maybe. Or, or maybe they were gracious and maybe they, they offered to, to you know, help, help the child and take the child into their own home. We just don't know. But whatever the case, the pregnancy brought with it nine months of awkward explanation and without question, scandal. When you read the gospel accounts, it seems that God went out of his way to arrange the most humiliating circumstances possible for his entrance. There's a writer named Malcolm Muggeridge who was agnostic for most of his life, but he, but he came to faith when he was in his 60s. And he wrote a book called Jesus, the Man Who, who Lives. And in that book, he, he notes that in our day with, with family planning clinics offering convenient ways to correct mistakes that would possibly embarrass a family, he says, it is, in point of fact, extremely improbable under existing conditions that Jesus would have been permitted to be born at all. Mary's pregnancy in poor circumstances and with the father unknown would have been an obvious case for an abortion. And her talk of having conceived as a result of the intervention of the Holy Spirit would have pointed to the need for psychiatric treatment and made the case for terminating her pregnancy even stronger. Thus, our generation, needing a Savior more perhaps than any that has ever existed, would be too humane to allow one to be born. We are fortunate that Mary didn't take that route. In fact, while Mary's pregnancy was most certainly unplanned, Mary's response to the angel was... um, was... well... It was world-changing. When she says in, in Matthew 2, 
uh, or Matthew chapter 1, may it be to me as you have said. She, she knew what she was getting into. She knew the scandal that would come. She knew the strife that would be there. And yet her response was one that changed the world. It occurs to me that Mary was the first person to accept Jesus on his own terms, regardless of personal cost to her and regardless of the scandal that would surround it. But do we look at Christmas like she did? Do we accept Jesus on his terms? You know, as our Christmas cards attest, we tend to observe a a mellow, domesticated holiday that is purged purged of any hint of scandal. But what we need to appreciate is that the birth of Jesus was rife with scandal. Christmas cards don't point to that. Something else we don't see in in the Christmas cards we get is the, the violence of the culture that Jesus came into. Now, in, in recent weeks and months, we've, we've been um, seeing violence in our own world. Uh, violence in the Middle East, we've seen violence on our own streets, and we've seen protests of that violence. But the violence of our world is nothing compared to the violence of the world that Jesus entered into. We've all heard of Herod the Great. And we know of Herod the Great primarily because of the massacre of the innocents. The, the fact that when the, the Magi don't come back and tell him where this king of the Jews is born, but they go another way, he orders this decree to go and have all of the, the male children two years of, of age and under Um, killed in the region of Bethlehem. And it shouldn't surprise us that he would do that because in his reign, he had uh, two of his brothers-in-law killed. He had his wife killed. He had two of his sons killed. And in fact, uh, five days before he died, he issued a decree that, that a number of people be rounded up, uh, be imprisoned, and then on the day he died, that they be executed so that there would be a proper um, um, feeling of mourning in the, in, the, you know, in the village because these people had died. What we know about Herod's regime is that hardly a day passed without an execution. The political climate at the time of Jesus' birth was a lot like Russia in the 1920s, where citizens couldn't gather in public meetings, spies were everywhere. And so in Herod's mind, the command to go and have hundreds of baby boys killed was just par for the course. It was just taking care of his political interests. That was the violence that Jesus was born into. And so Jesus enters this world amid scandal and strife and terror. And he spent his infancy hidden in Egypt as a refugee. Matthew notes that the local politics even determined where Jesus would grow up. 
when, when Herod the Great died, an angel came and reported to Joseph that he, um, that he could go back. But he said, don't go back to the area where you were uh, because Herod's son Archelaus is there. You don't want to go there. You need to go to the region north in Nazareth, which is where another one of Herod's sons Herod Antipas was, and we know of Herod Antipas because Jesus spoke of him as that fox. Remember that? And, and Herod Antipas is the one who beheaded John the Baptist. So that was where Jesus grew up. You see, the picture of Christmas that we sing about in carols that we hear from our children and in children's programs, which you're going to get to see in a few minutes. Um, The Christmas that is illustrated on cards has has been so has become so familiar to us that it's easy to miss the message behind the facts of Christmas. But when you reread the Christmas story in the scriptures, when you when you reread those those gospel accounts, you have to ask yourself. If Jesus came to reveal God to us, then what do I learn about God from that first Christmas? The first thing that I recognize from that first Christmas is that that God was humble. And before Jesus... Almost no pagan author had ever used humble as a compliment. We, we would see that term as a compliment these days, but not in those days. Yet the events of Christmas point inescapably to what seems like an oxymoron, a humble God. The God who came to earth didn't come in a raging whirlwind. He didn't come in a tidal wave. He didn't come in a firestorm. The God who came to earth, the maker of all things, he shrank down, 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 down to a single ovum. It's barely, uh, barely perceivable to the naked eye. And that tiny single cell inside this nervous teenager would divide and redivide until it it became a fetus and i love how the poet john dunn put it he said immensity cloistered in thy dear womb or as the apostle paul would say he made himself nothing he humbled himself here's a question for you How many of you like it when the president comes to town? Nobody? Why not? Traffic, right? I mean, in most towns, cities in our country, if Obama was going to be there, people would be thrilled. They would line the streets. We just read in the paper, oh, shoot. You know? Why? Because of the fanfare, because of the entourage, because of the streets being blocked off, because it's going to, you know, delay my commute. In, 
incredible contrast. The God of the universe came with no such fanfare. He went and visited our planet in a animal shelter where he was laid in a feed trough. And there was no hoopla around his coming. Now you say, well, wait a minute, Keith, but what about the angels that sang? Yeah, I mean, that's fanfare, but who did they sing to? Shepherds. And shepherds were nobodies with such bad reputation that the Jews regarded them as, as godless and made them stay in the outer courts of the temple. You see, the God of the universe chose to come in such a way as to present himself humble. The second thing that I recognize when I read the, the birth narratives again is that, that God is approachable. Those of us raised in a tradition of, of informal or private prayer may not appreciate the change that, that Jesus wrought in his coming. But when we think about the fact that, that Hindus offer sacrifices at the temple and, and, and Muslims bow down so low that their foreheads touch the ground, in most religious traditions, fear is the primary emotion when one approaches God. And the same thing was true for the Jews. I mean, you've got, you know, the burning bush of Moses, the hot coals of Isaiah, the extraterrestrial visions of Ezekiel. Anybody who was, was you know, blessed with a direct encounter with God expected to come away scorched or glowing or maybe limping like Jacob did. Jewish children also learned stories of the sacred mountain in the desert that anybody who touched it died. Anybody who touched the Ark of the Covenant died. Enter the most holy place in the temple and, and you don't come out. In fact, some of you may know that the high priest would only go into the Holy of Holies once a year and he would go in with bells on his robe jingling so people would know he was still alive and he had a, a rope tied to his ankles so that if he fell down dead, nobody would have to go in to get him out. They could just drag him out. I mean, that's the fear that people approached God with. But then God did this truly incredible thing. He made a surprise entrance as a baby in a manger. Now tell me this. What can be any less scary than a newborn with its arms wrapped tightly to their body? You see, what God did in Jesus is he found a way of relating to human beings that didn't involve fear. Why did he do that? Because fear never worked very well. The Old Testament includes far more low points than high points. And so a new approach was needed, a new covenant, as the Bible says. One that would not emphasize the wide gulf between God and humanity, but one that would bridge the gap. 
And God did that in Jesus. God took matter. The God who created matter entered into that matter. Um, Just as an artist might become a spot on his own painting or a, um, a playwright, a character within his own play, God wrote a story and, and he used real characters in real human history and then he entered into that story. The word became flesh. The third thing that we learn from that first Christmas is that God fights for the underdog. I tried to come up with one word that would cap- encapsulate that, but I couldn't, so I just went... Fights for the underdog. Um, while our culture is, is tilted often toward the rich and the powerful, what we read in, in the birth narratives of Jesus is that God is tilted toward the underdog. In, in Mary's Magnificat, she sings, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Perhaps the best way for us to understand Jesus' bent toward the underdog is to, is to really appreciate in, in today's terms what his birth looked like. I mean, an unwed mother, homeless was forced to look for shelter while traveling to meet heavy taxation demands of a colonial government. She lived in a land recovering from violent civil war and that was still very much in turmoil, not unlike Syria and Iraq in our day. She gives birth in, in the midst of all this, and then she has to flee as a refugee to Africa. I mean, we see those pictures on the news. And that's Mary. And that's Jesus. That may give us some insight as to why throughout his ministry, Jesus showed deep concern for the poor, the powerless, the oppressed, the underdogs. You see, God has preference for those who can't save themselves. And at the end of the day, that means that he has preference for all of us. There's one more view of Christmas that I've never seen on a Christmas card. And that's probably because no artist could could do it justice. And that's the picture of Christmas from Revelation chapter 12. If you were here about a year and a half ago, we were doing a study of the book of Revelation. And James actually preached on that text. And he the, the title of his sermon was um, Christmas in Heaven. And what Revelation chapter 12 does not depict is, is shep- there's no shepherds or wise men or a crazy king. But what it does show us is a dragon leading a ferocious struggle in heaven. 
There's a woman clothed with the sun and wearing a crown of 12 stars, and she cries out in pain as she's about to give birth. And then suddenly this enormous red dragon enters the picture, his tail sweeping a third of the stars out of the sky and flinging them to earth. And then he crouches hungrily before the woman. He's anxious to devour her child the moment that he's born. But at the last second, the infant is snatched away to safety, and the woman flees to the desert, and then all-out cosmic war breaks out. Now, I'll admit that that's not a, a picture of Christmas that we're used to. But what we have to understand from the book of Revelation is that Revelation is trying to let us see behind the curtains And let us see the reality that there are two parallel histories going on simultaneously. That one history is on earth where a baby is born and a crazy king wants him dead and so the baby has to flee to Egypt. But the other history is in heaven. And that's where the great invasion begins, where the the ruler of the forces of good leads his charge to planet Earth to conquer the forces of evil. I want to, to help us kind of picture that, I want to read from uh, J.B. Phillips. This is New Testament Christianity. And it's... um, a series of essays, some of them are, are fantasy, some of them are, are expositional, but he, he writes this one called The Angel's Point of View, where he's talking about, uh, the scene is, there's a, there's a senior angel who's taking a younger angel on a, on a tour of the galaxies, and he brings this younger angel to, to our galaxy and in the midst of all of these billions of stars. And it says, As the two of them drew near to the star which we call our sun and to its circling planets, the senior angel pointed to a small and rather insignificant sphere turning very slowly on its axis. It looked as dull as a dirty tennis ball to the little angel whose mind was filled with the size and glory of what he'd seen. I want you to watch that one particularly, said the senior angel, pointing with his finger. Well, it looks very small and rather dirty to me, said the little angel. What's so special about that one? That, replied the senior, is the visited planet. But how? queried the younger one. Do you mean that our great and glorious prince with all these wonders and splendors of his creation and millions more that I'm sure I haven't even seen yet went down in person to this fifth-rate little ball? Why should he do such a thing? It isn't for us, said his senior a little stiffly, to question his wise except that I must point out to you that he is not impressed by size and numbers as you seem to be, but that he really went, I know, and all of us in heaven who know anything know that. As to why he became one of them, how else do you suppose he could visit them? 
The little angel's face wrinkled in disgust. Do you mean to tell me, he said, that he stooped so low as to become one of those creeping, crawling creatures of that floating ball? I do. And I don't think he would like you to call them creeping, crawling creatures in that tone of voice. For strange as it may seem to us, he loves them. He went down to visit them, to lift them up, to become like him. The little angel looked blank. Such a thought was almost beyond his comprehension. And it's almost beyond mine. And yet I accept this notion is the key to understanding Christmas and is, in fact, the bedrock of my faith. As a Christian, I believe that we live in parallel worlds. I believe that there is one world that consists of hills and, and barns and lakes and politicians and shepherds watching their flocks. And then there's another world that consists of angels and sinister forces and somewhere out there places called heaven and hell. And one night in the cold, in the dark, among the hills of Bethlehem, those two worlds came together. That a God who knows no before and no after, he entered time and space a God who knows no boundaries, took on the shocking confines of a baby's skin. A God who, the Apostle Paul would say, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That God stepped out of the throne room of heaven and into the womb of an unmarried teenage girl so that he could become like me. So that eventually I might become like him. Could it be true that the God of the universe came in the form of a humble, approachable baby who in the end would die on a cross so that he might rescue all of us underdogs from the forces of evil? If that's true, it is the greatest story ever told. And that's what we celebrate this season. If we can begin to get our minds around that, then never again will we wonder whether what happens on this dirty little ball of a planet matters to the rest of the universe because we know that the God of the universe visited us. And when we get our mind around that, then we will look at all of our Christmas cards a little bit differently. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came. We honor you today. Mm-hmm.